Hello and welcome to the June episode of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and in a moment I'll be joined by Chris Collins and Anton Rosenfeld to answer your organic gardening questions. Our guest this month is the community food growing powerhouse, Sarah Venn, someone who's dedicated herself to showing others how to grow. This month we're in full swing with flower beds and veg patches filling out, but there's still plenty of time to sow and grow. June really is an exciting month in any garden, but for our team here, we're off to Gardener's World Live at the NEC with our show garden dedicated to biodiversity in your backyard. Chris and I will be discussing how to maintain your garden or allotment during a busy summer. And we're going to feed back from our appearances at Bewley and Malvern Garden Show. And Anton joins us to answer your questions on coffee grounds in compost, no-dig gardening and maintaining wisteria. But before we start, I'd just like to thank our new sponsors, Viridian Nutrition. Viridian produce a range of award-winning ethical and organic supplements, which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils and balms. I love the way they call themselves the vitamin company with an organic heart. Their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health shops across the UK. So to find out more, visit viridiannutrition.com. That's V-I-R-I-D-I-A-N hyphen nutrition.com. But now it's time for me to join Chris in our virtual potting shed. Well, hello, Chris. How are you? I'm good, Fiona. How are you? Yeah, really well. Thank you. Really well. What a glorious sort of late spring we we had in the end, didn't we? Yeah, it took a little while to warm up, didn't it? It's very interesting how cool it's been. I was sat on the bank doing a bit of fishing early May, shivering, and that doesn't usually happen. So it's definitely felt like a bit of a more, more temperate spring to me. That's a good way to describe it. A slower start. Of course, I saw you in the last week or so because we bumped into each other at the Chelsea Flower Show, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yeah, the glorious, the great and the good all gathering at the Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> It was fascinating, actually. I thought this year the the way that actually organic growing and biodiversity and really thinking about your garden space as being part of the solution in terms of climate change, really that's coming through stronger than ever, isn't it? I can't help feeling Lawrence Hills was an incredible visionary. I really, and I've been saying, I've been doing quite a lot of talks over the spring to various people, various places, and I've said this to all of them. I think that it's interesting how um, what he initially practiced has kind of come into light in many ways. That whole thing about making sure that nature's important, organic methods, which was laughed at and you know originally, and now everybody's embracing it. And I think actually seeing Chelsea this year was incredible because it was all about letting go, wasn't it? It was all about just hands off, uh, let the plants do their thing. It wasn't too overmanaged. So I, I found that really, really interesting. I do worry a little bit that what those gardens would look like in three months' time <laughs> when the, uh, the more aggressive species get going. But I think it does make a very important point. And that is you can garden and have nature side by side. Yes, and also one of the gardens had a tree, had a tree that had just fallen across it, or that was the way it was made to look. We talked about this before, you know, the importance of allowing dead wood to stay in a garden in order f- to create habitat. Exactly. And uh, well, maybe it's also worth pointing out, you can still have a beautiful garden and you can have something like that to the side of it. Or you can bind the two together. If you go to Benmore Botanic Garden, my favourite garden, by the way, in Scotland, they allow fallen trees and then they plant rhododendrons into the root ball. 
So they use it as a surface to grow the plant. So you look at roadies who would germinate there normally, all they've done is provided that platform. I think there was a lot of that at Chelsea. It was a lot of like, let that succession roll. Doesn't mean you stop planting things you love. You're just looking at the platforms they'd feel most comfortable in, most natural in. So it's an opportunity more than anything. It is, it is. And I mean, you really felt that they'd really thought about those wildflowers and weeds that would really be flowering at, at their absolute most beautiful and glorious time. As we know, that actually there's an awful lot of weeds that are absolutely stunning when you get close up to them. Yeah, it's all in the beho- eye of the beholder, isn't it? I love the the massive renaissance and a national movement in front of the dandelion for the dandelion where everyone's rediscovered this amazing plant, which is beautiful, edible, pollinator, does all these different things. And, and no, I think that's a, it's a great thing that they, they're being celebrated because they are beautiful. One time it, when I started, it was all about knocking them out and putting what we wanted in. The point being is, is you could do both and you could do them in combination, in my opinion. I don't know though, Chris, there's something about the weeds at Chelsea that looks an awful lot more glamorous than the weeds in my garden. <laughs> I think they get. I think they get a good life, you know, on the progress, on the journey to their final position. They can come down my lot, and if they want, it's full of mare's tail, full of coon's grass. I have, Fiona, got a big job on my hands actually in the next couple of weeks just to get on top of it because my work life takes me away so heavily over the spring periods. Now I need. I've got some catch up, and the other thing's quite interesting is because it's been quite cool and wet. The weeds have particularly enjoyed this spring. They've particularly thrived. So. Little bit of work to do, that's for sure. And I think, you know, it's fair to say there's a bit of a difference between pernicious weeds and, you know, annual weeds. And 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 actually, um, I mean, I've noticed across uh, some of my flower beds that some of those um annual weeds that have come up have been very, very fleshy. So they so that so it, it's a it's quite a big plant. So that when you by the time you take it out. Um, it actually makes the job quite a bit easier, but then they haven't yet flowered or, or set seed. Um, and they are actually quite magnificent, just as this sort of wonderful dome of, of, of leaf, you know. Yeah, be- so, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? When these plants are allowed to do their stuff, then they, they really are beautiful. Like on my lot, I have a lot of speed well, and if there's open ground, I love the little blue flowers. I love its repentance nature, its creeping nature. I'm quite happy for it to be there. It's a beautiful plant. So it all depends what you're doing, what you're growing, and really what's, you know, is, is, is it in your way? Is it being is it inhibiting you from doing the gardening you want to do? And sometimes it's actually quite useful to have a bit of soil cover, isn't it? Yeah, I'd rather see a speedwell there than bare soil that's leaching and getting uh, and getting damaged by the rains and, and generally, yeah, because that plant is aerating the soil. It's helping soil structure. It looks all right as well. I do draw the line at mare's tail, but I've said that a thousand times on this podcast. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Because you're going to have to keep on top of it, aren't you? It's, yeah, I have to pull it. I've got no other. It's a very clever plant, so it almost like it adapts to your to your behaviour. I, I think it's got an intelligence, but I, the only thing I can do at the moment is get down there and help my other plants establish. So there's various ways I'm going to do that. I plant quite thick with things like potatoes. I plant my trench potatoes quite close. So when they come up, they're very thick, and that means they're shading out any competition. I've got an area down the bottom that's really quite weedy underneath a little uh, cherry tree. I'll probably get my squashes and pumpkins in there because they'll cover that ground, and again, they'll shade out the competition. So where it's bad, I will use other methods, other plants to try and get on top to outcompete them. And, I mean, it's also a good time to take stock as well, isn't it? I mean, it's early June. We're already seeing some things that perhaps have worked and some things that perhaps haven't worked, and it's not too late to go again, is it? It's interesting because I did a lot of drill sowing early May, 
And because the soil was so cold and it's been such a cool spring, a lot of that stuff hasn't come through. Or if it has, it's been patchy. So I'm now with areas that I will re-sow. It's never too late to sow, especially leafy greens and stuff. It's certainly not too late to put your run of beans in. You can even do a potato crop now, a late potato crop, get them chitted, get them in. I have potatoes for Christmas Day, usually every year with a late sort of crop. So don't think it's over. It doesn't have to be this mad rush in May, everything in place, and then we'll just water and weed it. You can roll those seed sowings. You can roll that growing. You can have a look at any bare patches. You might want to put some hardy annuals in those bare patches or some flowers in there. You know, there's lots of stuff to do. Keep interacting with it. And then when you have got a bit of a weed problem, as soon as those plants that you want to grow are up and they're bigger and they're starting to shade stuff out, you get a bit more balance on the, on your garden or on your allotment. Are you doing any moving about at this time of year as well? In terms of plants? In terms of plants. So something that's maybe gone over and you're thinking, oh, I'll put it somewhere else for next year or, you know, that kind of, you know, reorganisation. Have you got any time for that? Or is that, is that something you're doing as part of the jobs? I would always, any kind of moving, I would usually leave till the autumn. If anything perennial, I'd leave it till autumn. And that, just because as a plant goes into dormancy, I can then move it. And then that means as the winter, through the winter, it can put back its roots on. But that's a perennial thing. For fair, I have not got masses of perennial on my allotment. I do most all seasonal. I've got uh, just a few on my balcony. So I might I might whip a few roses uh, out onto the, onto the verge and buy a couple more of them. But on the whole... It's just seasonal buying for me. You put things out on the verge when you've had enough of them, do you? Your <laughs> neighbours are really lucky. I think you've got the most spectacular verges. When it looks, I just put all the bowls from the balcony out there, all of them. They look great this year, look even better next year, but it just like just feels the right thing to do, isn't it? You don't want to be throwing them away. So, you know, as long as no one, as no one, feels, no one feels my collar for it, I'll keep doing it. <laughs> doing all this stuff against the backdrop of getting out and about because it's obviously heavy season for you in terms of getting out and about and doing talks and then getting to all the all the garden shows but you, you had a really good start to the season because you went to Bewley for us the Gardeners World Live their first spring show at Bewley um tell us how you got on down there well that was brilliant I think it was really worthwhile us going and we met a lot of nice people I have to do a shout out for Jane Wallace who's a big fan of the podcast <laughs> Jane she was really nice to me uh, and she, she was so flattering about about the, the work we do and I, that's just so nice to hear because we do do our best so a little bit of feedback is is so nice but the whole thing was such a chilled out show it's in a stunning setting people are friendly they're all gardeners we're all exchanging info it's, you know there's very rarely you know if, you, if you're at a place where there are gardeners and gardening, then usually you have a good time. Yes, well, that's true. We're generally quite an easy crowd to please, I would say. Yes, I think um, uh, we gardeners, if we're going to a garden show, then we're there because we we know we're going to really have a good time. I, I also saw you at Malvern. Yes, yeah, Malvern. Crazy Malvern for me because I do the school gardens there, which is amazing fun. And then I also sit on the main stage, so I get to sit with the great, great, the good Adam Frost. I was on stage with and Francis Tottle. And obviously I sit up there and I get across my organic messages, which is now really run of the mill. It's kind of accepted, isn't it? I would uh, I'd have been fighting maybe with a few gardeners 10 years ago on the subject. But again, it's a, that, it's a beautiful flower show as well. Hopefully we can do something there in the future. Very friendly people, very beautiful gardens. And obviously, for me, it's a big bonus because I work with the kids. Yeah, your favourite thing, I think, is <laughs> Matt. Yeah. So obviously, just thinking about all this time out, um, and when you're back home, how do you manage to fit in the gardening? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I think you need to garden to your means. I think a little ways. I think if you're not home much, or you're likely to forget about your plants, you need to look at maybe arid plants, plants that don't take so much water. Herbs, which you're more familiar with, and you know, you know that if you use the more Mediterranean, the woody ones, 
Um, I think my big rule, and this is the truth, is I've just plied up my balcony again. I do, you know, end of May, early June, all the balcony gets replied. It's full of bedding and full of veg. Um, I'll get in at half eight, nine o'clock at night, and no matter how tired I feel, I go out and I look at it and I water it and I and I make sure it takes. So a bit of dedication is definitely involved in it. I think you take on what you can afford and what you have time to do is really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think for me, the one thing I always do is I walk down and then I sort of fish a few things out of the pond if I think it's, you know, there's a bit of blanket weed developing or kind of move a few things around and pull some leaves out or things that have fallen in and and then just, just watch it get the kind of joy of that. I think you put a pond in recently, didn't you? I did one on the allotment. Well, Peter did. My Irish um, neighbour put one in. And uh, I gave him quite a lot of advice. I was a consultant, really, to be fair. <laughs> and uh, we've, within three weeks, we had frogs spawning in. And there's frogs on the allotment. And so they really, you make, it's a good example of uh, you work hard on a garden, then you get time to stop and look at it and see all that detail. You really understand why you do that. Same with food. I work so hard to have organic food in my kitchen and it gets to sort of July and it starts to bear and I start to eat it. You know what? It's just nothing beats it at all. So when you don't feel like it, just imagine what you can get from it later and it usually gets you in the mood. Well, and if you have provided a habitat for toads, for example, then that might help with the slug. Yeah, certainly kill slugs. I've noticed a definite remark dropping them and they're my, one of my main nemesis on the on the allotment. So, yeah, it's right. There's predators and pests you don't want there so much. You're creating a nice balance, aren't you? And that's what you're after. So it's always thinking about that, isn't it? Always just thinking about the ecosystem within your garden, the, the systems you can create that will yes. then actually benefit you. And and if you can set those systems in motion, then you don't have to be there all the time. No, you don't. Certainly, I think, uh, although this is the busy time, I think I remember last year, by end of June, early July, it was warmer, and everything had got up and grown and started to fill in. And it kind of takes care of itself from that point on in lots of ways. I had very little problems there and had a lot of good food off it. So I'm, you know, I've been now repeat itself this year, but the effort goes in in that sort of May, June April, May, June period where you just got to keep an eye on it, get it up and going, and then you can enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you were to do any sowing now, any seed sowing, you know, flowers particularly is what's on my mind, what would you be thinking about now? I know it's early June. It feels a bit late to, to be sowing and, and raising things, but actually there must be still plenty of opportunity to sow flowers. Well, I think I'd certainly still give the hardy annuals a go. I'd certainly give things like English marigold, cornflower, goodisha. I think sunflowers you could probably still get in now because they certainly come up quick enough. Um, you can do like a broadcast. You can get like a wildflower mix, which is a bit misleading. Um, like a, they call it a meadow mix, but it's cornflowers, poppies, that kind of stuff, and you broadcast it, uh, which is a one-season wildflower meadow, basically. Um, you can still get that stuff. I would still give it a go. Make sure you get plenty of water on it once you've sown it. Keep it damp. The soil's warming up. Once it's germinated, they they really do move. You know, these plants don't mess about. If you were popping in to buy a pack of seeds just to, you know, just to maybe add a bit of colour, what are you looking for on the pack? Well, I'll be looking for hardy annuals now. By hardy annuals, I mean they're things I can direct sow. So I can direct them. I can put them in as a drill in lines or I can broadcast them. But it means they can go straight in the soil. Not the time for half hardy annuals which are your kind of tender plants, your, your lobelias and your all petunias and these kind of plants because they need raising in a propagator and you should start them a lot earlier. So you raise them in a propagator, then you plant them out this time, beginning of June after the frost. So they're a bit late for them, but the hardies you can just you can just put in the ground and get on with it. You've probably still got a good chance with. 
that's very reassuring because I know I've got a lot of packs of hardy annual seeds sitting um, on the side at home and I just haven't got around to them yet. So I'm going to do that. So you've given me lots of inspiration. So I'm looking forward to that. Talking of inspiration, you met somebody really interesting this time, didn't you? We're going to hear a really great chat in a minute. Tell us about the interview coming up. Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, I have a lot of time for it. It, it, You know, a lot of people don't have a garden. A lot of people live in flats and uh, in urban areas now, nearly half the population don't have this big open spaces maybe our grandparents and our parents had. Uh, And she's a a champion of, of community gardening and she knows how to tap the resources um, I think, you know, she's a bit of a hero in my eyes for that. I really like that, taking it to the people, people who might necessarily don't garden because they feel maybe it's not part of their lives or part of the conditions and they all the finances they have or whatever. I think she takes it to the people and, uh, and, um, and I really enjoyed the interview. Well, I can't wait to hear it because I agree. She's an absolute inspiration. I've followed her on, on social media for ages now. And, and exactly as you say, you know, she is taking gardening to people um, rather than assuming that people will come to it themselves, she's actually creating the conditions and the environments and the places where people can go um, and get involved, get stuck in and learn how to grow. So time for me to say goodbye to you, Chris, for the moment. But I'll see you very, very soon because we're going to be at the BBC Good Food Show and Gardeners World Live, which is at the NEC in Birmingham, the 15th to the 18th of June. We've got a show garden there. Chris is talking on loads of stages. Um, we've got plenty of opportunity for people to come and chat to all of the team at Garden Organic. Um, do, if you are in the area, do come and see us. If you're coming to the show, do come along. We'd love to talk to you on the stand. We'd love to show you around our show garden. So really looking forward to that. How about you, Chris? Certainly, has a big month coming up, Fiona. Big month coming up. And uh, I know we'll enjoy it. We always do. And uh, like you say, I can't reach out enough. Come and see us. Come and chat to us. We love meeting you. We love we love meeting. We love chatting gardening with you. Please do come along. We'll see you there. Now, dubbed the Banksy of Veg, Sarah Venn is a community growing champion and founder of Edible Bristol. Chris chats with her about how to create impactful community growing spaces and takes a tour of Sarah's own garden. Well, welcome to the Garden Organic Podcast, and I'm got a treat today. I'm with Sarah Vane. How are you, Sarah? I'm all right, Chris. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And uh, thanks for coming along and doing this. I'm Pleasure. very excited to talk to you because I know you're a very active horticulturist here in Bristol. And they actually call you the Banksy of Veg. Apparently, they do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm not quite sure about that because, you know, that's big shoes to fill, but definitely a big compliment. It is a huge compliment. And I think, well, knowing you and knowing the work you do, I think it's warranted. So I think that's why I raised it at the beginning. So I thought, I thought where do you start, really? So I thought just start a bit about you and your background and how, how you, what you did originally and how you got into this. So I went and did a degree in art. And the reason I went and did a degree in art was because somebody told me that I'd never get in. So I was proving a point. Um, and if somebody had said to me at that point, why don't you think about horticulture? I would have gone, oh, yeah, because I was the kid that always wanted to garden at school. I was the kid that was gardening at home. I was the kid that was always growing stuff. So, yeah, so the thought of actual horticulture had never crossed my mind, despite having been growing since I was three. Um, and, and then I fell into catering and I was there for a very short amount of time um, before somebody said to me, in fact, it was a lady called Sue Brown who said to me, all you ever do is talk about your garden. Why don't you go and do something in gardening? And it had honestly, until that moment, never crossed my mind that it could be a job. So I wrote to my local nursery and said, give a job, basically. 
never expecting them to. And they did. Um, and I started just as a nursery assistant and I worked my way up to production manager. Um, and I learned a whole load of stuff doing that. A lot of it being there's an awful lot of horticulture that isn't very good for the planet. Uh-huh. There's an awful lot of horticulture that's quite posh and quite, you know, puts its name under regenerative, but is actually just shifting people out of the way. And so then I came to Bristol and I kind of was like, well, what, well now what do I do? Now what do I do? So I went and worked at one of the local city farms. I ran a project called Tiny Trowels, which was kids, mums, gardening. There was no gardening. We drank a lot of tea. We planted <laughs> a lot of broad bean seeds, which the kids then took up. Um, but what I actually saw was the way that this tiny little space, this city farm, brought these women together. And they were all women who had had some sort of trauma around childbirth and having young children. So they, you know, they'd split up with abusive partners. They'd, they'd had really traumatic births. So all of this stuff. And they just came together and they, they were this fierce crew of women <laughs> and they were amazing. Um, and they still meet at the farm once a week and the kids still play together and, you know, all that stuff. So Tiny Trails lasted like a year and a half, but it's it's legacy, which I hate that word, but its legacy goes on. So your, your experience with the women, yeah, you could see the core, what brought them together, what glued them together, basically. Yeah, yeah. it was this tiny little space yeah. that actually they weren't even that invested in it, but somehow it just gave them somewhere to be and feel safe yeah sure yeah and that's led to edible Bristol. yes obviously you champion tell us a bit about that because you built this into quite a major thing now well so so then i one sunday morning was watching youtubes and found ron finley who is an amazing gardener in south central los angeles who nearly got sent to prison twice for putting food on the like the path outside his garden um, and I was just like, okay, so if he if he can do it there, why can't we do it here? And that was that was it. So we did it here. So really, you made that connection, didn't you? Which I think is quite important. Uh, I think certainly for people who are interested in the environment, organic growing, etc. There's this huge relationship between what we do as gardeners and our communities. Yeah, totally. Obviously, you know, alongside the whole Ron Finley stuff, there's all the incredible edible stuff that went on up in Todmorden and around the country, and you, you know, lots of lots of stuff going on. Um, and you know, it's Bristol and you come into Bristol and everybody goes, Oh, it's, you know, it's a green capital. It's, you know, there's, there's food growing everywhere. And you come in and it's just not. And I was like, there's tons of land. Why aren't we utilizing the land that is just there rather than shutting things off? Our first project was up in an area called Kingsdown, which is again, quite a deprived area with some people who live in huge tower blocks up there. We had a budget of six quid. <laughs> I don't know. We begged, stole and borrowed some compost. And I think we bought some plants from somewhere like Poundland. I mean, it was, you know, and just got them in. And that's, it's still going. It's still, you know, the community are like, yeah, we love this little garden that, you know. And that's what it was always going to be. It was always about. It was never about stamping edible Bristol on loads of gardens yeah. and going in and making gardens. It was all about empowering people to so do it sounds, themselves. So that's a very important point, you mate. It's about people. No. And it's yeah. about them growing it. It's about their space. Yeah. That's why it's proved to be successful, isn't it? But it's expanded a lot since then, hasn't it? I mean, every now and again I count it up and it's ridiculous. I think we've worked with about 60 communities over wow. the last nearly decade, which is quite scary. Um, next year it'll be 10 years. 10 years, and it's a bit of a blueprint, isn't it, for other people? Right? You know, yes, it's a blueprint, but we needed to have picked it up 10 years ago because now we genuinely are feeding people who 
can't access decent food. I mean, you're organic, aren't you? You're organic. Don't you? Totally. It's not about It's about let's grow food, let's make food available to anybody that needs it, no questions asked. But it's also about looking at who needs food and who we share the planet with. Like, it's not just about us. We can't survive without pollinators, however much we think we can. So it's really focused on the environmental answer. And I think as well, for us, like all those years ago, it was always a response to climate change. And I think sometimes people go, oh, it's just a lot of nice, lovely people doing some gardening. But it's not. It's it's saying, no, this is the answer. You've all got the power in your hands. And are they, are they obviously got the environmental concerns. Is it, is it edible plants you concentrate on that you do pollinators? Or do you look at, you, you do more stuff, you tree planting, stuff like that as well? We have done tree planting. I mean, we, you know, it, obviously it's that whole thing, isn't it? It just depends on the space. Right plant, yeah. right place, yes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we do quite a lot of tree planting. That's one reason that, you know, we're kind of like, oh my goodness, it's them again. The council are really scared of fruit yeah, trees. Yeah. Really, really scared. It's the size of them, and whether they well, you know, children will throw things through windows, kind of uh, attitude, which is yeah, true. They probably will, but they yeah. might also take an apple off a tree and eat yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we do as I mean as much apple planting as much tree planting as we possibly yeah, can, sure. really. Yeah. Fruit, particularly emphasis on fruit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're looking at a much bigger picture here, aren't you? Obviously, yeah. we chatted earlier about that. You know, lots of small efforts make up for larger efforts. Yeah, and that's totally. very much your yeah, way, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got a huge amount of gardens in this in this country. Apparently, our garden space is bigger than the space that the national parks cover. So imagine if everybody was doing, I don't want to say the right thing, but you know what I mean. Yeah, just making that effort, that yeah. awareness, etc. So I suppose in a way, if, um, this might be a difficult question in the sense that there's obviously lots of ways of going about this, but if I turned up and said I want to start community gardening, what would be your your advice? So the first thing I would say to you is that there is no I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. That's a good start. I like that. So I like you have to, if you want to start a community garden, then it has to be community. So it needs to be where you live. You need a group of people who are committed to whatever it is you want to do. You need to do a massive consultation. You've got to talk to the people who might use that piece of land for other things. Do kids play football on it? Do people take their dogs for a walk on it? You, you know, what, what else is that space used for? Find out, talk to people, have an event at the space, bring people into it, you know, do all of that stuff. Don't even think about what you want to plant. Think about the people. So you need to survey. You remind me of a store years ago up in Dundee where they got this money, I think it's EU money for the so-called black spot of unemployment, and they built this big park skateboard thing, but they did it all out of consultation and, and it just yeah. got ruined. If you haven't done that consultation, mm. it gets trashed. And there are multiple examples of that all over the place that we've all seen happen. And that's about use. So you start off with land use then. So why, yeah. and then you go to people or you ask them, what do you want to use it for? Yeah. And so if, there's, if they decide they want to go organic veg, what will your next steps be? So question? the next step is you bring people together. So, so you have one meeting. That you have to have that first meeting, but you can completely ignore what happens because all the people that like to come to a meeting come to that meeting. So, so then you have the second meeting, and at the second meeting, a load of people turn up and go, "Oh yeah, we, you know, quietly, we've been thinking this and this and this and this and this." And then you have to do a big reality check with people because quite often people think community garden, rows of lettuces and carrots. And they don't really see the time constraint that's going to... So you're then offering your expertise then, yeah. aren't you, in that scenario? Yeah. So they're, they've got an empowerment for your expertise. Yeah, totally. Do you have trouble with lack of horticultural skills? There's not, there's not many of us around anymore. So I wonder whether, you know, if you've got 60 sites going, do you have issues? I would say the most said thing to me is, we want to do this, but we've never grown anything ever. 
exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's a massive lack of skills, and there's a massive lack of any uh, anywhere to go and get those skills. So it is that thing of people are actually learning on the job, as it were. Yeah. We, we've got another project that where we're literally going to be teaching teachers and community kind of leaders to to how what to do because. That, you know, but people don't, people don't know. Somewhere. Is it like yeah. you should just be saying about if you buy a carrot, you need to do this, this. Just that basic information yeah. needs to be related. Then you're away. You grow one carrot, you'll be able to grow You can grow a carrot forever. And equally, you know, getting kids getting kids gardening isn't as easy as you think. Mm. But if you can if you can hit on a few simple things, like, you know, get them looking through a microscope at some soil and seeing all of those little things running around, yeah. they're hooked for life. Um, so, yeah, I just think... Um, yeah, we've got probably two generations that are really missing the skills. And we're playing catch-up a little bit. Yeah, totally. That. But, um, and, but we've got people like you who are, who are driving it, so that's what we need. Now, let's get into nitty-gritty a bit here, because that, I mean, it's really lovely what you're, you know, just the work's amazing, and I'm so impressed with it all. But you do have to do a lot of politics, and you do need to raise money, and they're like, you know, that's really the gutty yeah. end of the whole business. Yeah. How would you, if you were, if I was someone's going to start out, or a group were going to start out doing stuff, how do you go about getting sponsorship and how well, you build relationships? Well, people? so here's the thing. Quite often we get people come to us and they go, we need, we need some help because we need to write a funding bid and we need to open a bank account and we need to write a constitution. And I go, why? What are you doing? And they don't actually know. <laughs> so I think we need to take quite a lot of things back. And like, you've got to decide what it is you're actually going to do before you start applying for funding. And if you've only got a tiny space and you're not in an area of huge deprivation, you can do an awful lot in a garden with very little money. So I would always say that, you know, look at how you can fund yourself. Cake, cake sales. Who doesn't love to spend a pound on a cake? Um, you know, can everybody become a member and put a tenner in a, a year? All of, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, in Bristol, we have these people who work for the council who are called community something officers, whose job it is literally to find out what people want to do and sort of facilitate it to happen. Not engagement officers almost. That's, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've always got access to pots of money, so it's always worth. And, and also, your local councillor will always know where to get money. Yeah. Um, but w- what we found over the last few years is actually working as a maintenance team. Obviously, we're not a maintenance team, but we can do the same stuff, you know, and at the same time be teaching our volunteers what we're doing and why we're doing it and all of that um so we do that in our millennium square gardens and and you know sponsorship from industry and yeah. all i would say is just you, you've got to be a bit careful where you take money from obviously like yeah. we, if shell came to us and said would you like five million pounds we'd probably say thank you but no <laughs> um but you, you know you've just got to be sensible about who you're taking money from and so, so you're dealing with local businesses there, like the one in millennium square. yeah like totally say, it, i'll just explain to the listeners what that is it's a, Series of raised beds, which are food grown in. There's bee hotels. It's all very environmentally friendly and organic. And really well done. That's run by volunteers and yourself. But that's supported by a local business. Yeah, that's, so that's supported by the um, the Science Museum. We're the curious who are next door. They have the lease on that land, so it's up to them to look after it. So we, we're just paid as their maintenance crew. And so as you go in under the guise of maintenance, yeah, but we're, but we're also a lot cheaper yeah. than a contractor would be. Who maybe would spray and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and well. do all the stuff that we don't want to be, be doing. And so that's so we're going. So when, when you approach someone like the Science Museum, do you go in with a proposal? Is that so they, they, we, don't, we don't approach anybody. People approach us. They approach you. So yeah. you've got a reputation to you. And they came to us and they 
at the time they were going to have a big food exhibition and they were like we want to kind of be able to link outside and inside and show that you know food growing happens outside and it can happen in a city and so we just started doing it so that's a good tip isn't it look out for what's current what organizations yeah. are up to and seeing if you can yeah totally to that yeah that's and that's about having your finger on the pulse as far yeah. as the city goes or yeah. your town or your village and yeah. seeing what people are up to I suppose in a way I'm quite interested of like, you know, you can't go anywhere, especially in your game, without getting into politics. How much support do you get or how much resistance do you have to cope with, I suppose? And I can see you grimacing, so I know some of the answers to this. But that is obviously a big part of what you do. It is a big part of what we do. And I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to sit here and go, we get permission for everything. We don't. You know, we we gardened in the middle of the M, of the A38 for months and months and months with nobody knowing if you put a high-vis vest on you can do anything that is literally true <laughs> um but yeah generally we have a lot of support from community we don't have much support from council and the reason we don't have much support for council is because they're stuck in their ways and yeah. you know there there is no horticulture in the council departments anymore and they're only worried about health and safety and what happens if it goes wrong and we have to return it to whatever it was before so you think they're you know, looking at the negatives rather than the positive. they're waiting for failure they're yeah, literally yeah. waiting for failure. And that gets them out of it. Yeah. That means they can... They, they can, can say no because they, they go, well, no, because it won't work. Yeah. And, and then we'll then it'll cost us money to come in and, and put it back to how it was, as opposed to what they should be doing, which is, okay, yeah, that's great. Um, we need to put you in, t- in touch with whoever. It doesn't need to be us, but, you know, these people, they will support you. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I mean, you link up. So therefore you are, you're, you're, you're then relying, I suppose, on charities and volunteers yeah. and all this sort of stuff rather than governmental funding. Yeah, yeah. As well. I'm talking about volunteers. I mean, that's what the expression really, obviously, Global Organic have a big tradition of volunteers. It's very successful. You obviously do as well. What's it like working with volunteers? We're really lucky. Bristol is amazing. Um, we worked out a few years ago that our average volunteer was about 28. That's unheard of because people just assume that volunteers are of a certain demographic. So we get a lot of people come to us who are, they're in some sort of transition. It could be they're coming out of a mental health crisis. It could be that they're trying to change careers. They've suddenly realised that the world's going to hell in a handcart and that they need to do something about it. You know, there's, there's a multitude of reasons. They're amazing. And I mean, we've had volunteers literally from the age of five weeks didn't do a lot um up to sort of 80 so you know but i think i think the other thing is because we're quite activist based it's not just pretty gardening Mm. yeah we kind of we we get there's there's a certain person really who's like yeah yeah we want to do this we want to we want to see how this works so there's people probably yeah kind of worried about the environment yeah so there's yeah so they're looking at the wider picture yeah yeah and i suppose you get volunteers do that the ones that hang around a long time they then become guardians for the well luke is a prime example of somebody who bounced into our lives six or seven years ago and has we've never got rid of him so we thought (laughs) we might as well employ him yeah so so you get people who stay around and then they become leaders yeah totally and yeah. do you ever have a shortage of them or is there lots? Oh, of yeah. I mean, every, everybody in the world who works with volunteers will tell you that there are never enough. Equally. The, the army, the more. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But, but you know, we don't, we don't struggle, struggle. Yeah. yeah. So have you got a favourite bit of Bristol? You've had all this influence on the city um, and, and you've done bits. Is there some one project and stuff that you've planned that you particularly I'm not allowed to, to have a favourite project. That would be <laughs> yeah. awful. I bet you have, though. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to say where yeah, it is. Okay. Um, what would it be? What, what would it look like in your mind? It it's those it? tiny little spaces outside the most, you know, the places you don't expect to see food grow. So, you know, one of my favourite places is there's two trees outside St Mary Redcliffe Church 
that we planted way back in 2015. I absolutely love those because they're there and they're productive. But then there's, you know, there's, there's a library up White Ladies Road that's got a little garden outside of it that we just helped to start off and they're running with it now. And it's amazing. And actually, it had a really big conversation because at the time, libraries were really at risk. And, and the conversation was, well, look, this isn't, just, this isn't just about libraries. This is about an actual community hub where people can come along and help themselves to food and get warm and have a cup of tea and, you know, all so of that sort of stuff. So it kind of makes people go, yeah. that's a library, but there's something else. Yeah. I have to say the garden in Avonmouth is pretty spectacular. No thanks to me. That's entirely up to Luke. Um, Describe it to me a little bit. So it's you get off the train on platform two at Avonmouth. Avonmouth is a really kind of industrial area. Um, There's a fence. You go behind the fence and there's this beautiful container garden that's just full of life. And it's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, Um, So, you know, it's those finding those things in the places that the last places. Yeah. Yeah. We were discussing earlier about balconies and stuff and now everywhere is a garden. Yeah. That's how you like Everywhere. Everywhere. There's nowhere that you couldn't have a garden. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think the nice thing about that as well is if you were beginning just to sew that packet. Yeah, totally. And then that will keep the whole ball rolling. And do you think like, as a, as like we're both horticulturists, do you think we're undervalued in society for yeah, the stuff we do? Totally, I think we are, because people just see us as gardeners and they don't know what that means. Yeah. People just assume that if you're a gardener, you spend your life on a mower or with a hedge trimmer, or they don't see the, the skill that's behind it. Do you think that's um, rubbed in more by the way it's portrayed in the media and social media, etc.? Do you think we could do a better job of how we're perceived? I think we could do a much better job of how we're perceived. I think that the industry needs to do a much better job of how we're perceived so so here's my thing when i whenever i teach people i say to people look at instagram look at your favorite instagrammers it's absolutely fine find somebody who's gnarly trust them (laughs) i like the word gnarly it's probably all three of us are gnarly (laughs) (laughs) well that kind of leads me to the last question really just quite like i know this is a hard one as well really just what about the future? What do you see in the future? Do you think this is going to keep on growing? And, and I mean, because you're out and about as well, and you're not just in Bristol all the time. I mean, I always used to joke, like 10 years ago, I would say in 10 years' time, I'd like to be lying on a beach and everybody else would be just getting on with it. <laughs> haven't quite got there yet, but, you know, we can live in hope. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I mean, I just hope it becomes the norm. I, I don't, I, I think there's a big conversation to have about land and particularly, you know, land in cities that nobody uses. Yeah. And people go, oh, there's no land. No, there's loads. Just go and bloody use it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because I, I'm constantly, I walk around in London and I go, why isn't that being used? Yeah. <laughs> Look, that at that. Look at yeah, that. I'm Look at just, that. Look at that. I'm obsessed with And quite often yeah. they're big pieces of yeah, land that yeah. you could grow an orchard on yeah. or you could put, I don't know, a massive herb garden in or, you know, there's a whole load of things that you could do. It's interesting as well, isn't it? Because I live next to like a canal called the old, it's called the old New River in, uh, mm. in London and and you can plant that up and then, then people say, oh, it'll get vandalised. But I think that if you plant it up, then it becomes policed itself, doesn't it? It you does. But also, if you go back to right at the beginning and we talk about community consultation, if you do that, it doesn't get vandalised. So you, in a way, it polices itself yeah. if people are involved. Local it's that involved. thing. If you are a kid and you are likely to do something that's bad and you know that your auntie and your mum and your gran have been involved in that, you're not going to do it because you're going to get clipped three times. Yeah. So there's a, you become socially obliged then, aren't yeah. you? Because everybody's involved in it. Yeah. And that, that means it pleases them. And I think that's really important to point out because it's a bit of a cop-out, and it when you go, oh, it'll just get wrecked. It's an, ex- it's an excuse. That yeah. whole, oh, well, don't, don't do that because it, either it will fail or it will get vandalised. It's just an excuse. It's a top-down excuse for, 
oh no we, d- we don't want to know and, and it's not allowing people to be empowered in their own areas it's mm. it's shutting things down yeah, and that's not okay no no so uh, well i'll tell you what that's a great way of place to finish and i think that i know you're um, strict on this as well I've, I've talked to sarah and all you've done but you're very very stressed that it's about all the people here and all the people here. yeah with luke here's behind me and everybody who gets involved you did a brilliant job Long, long may it last, and I hope people come and have a look and see what you're doing and take an example. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Cheers. time now for the post bag. I'm here with Chris Collins and Dr. Anton Rosenfeld answering your questions. Now, the first one is all about a community garden and a bed that's in shade. So I help on a community garden where we have a bed that sits under a tree. We had some strawberries there. They were growing okay, but they died last year. What would you suggest we replace them with? Anton, growing under a tree. Well, we're sort of venturing into the realms of agroforestry there, really. And we've got sort of different layers in our canopy. A sort of agroforestry system would recommend sort of woodland plants. Things like black currants would do pretty well in shade. Um, also blackberries as well do pretty well in a shady condition. Um, you could also perhaps try a Japanese wineberry. Normally when they're in full sunlight they can be a bit rampant, they can spread a bit, but when they're sort of checked by the shade I think they'd actually do pretty well, be a suitable plant for it. What's the yield like off a Japanese wineberry bush? That's pretty good really. I mean it's pretty similar to a rice Gooseberry or, or gooseberry, something like that. So it keeps on going through the season. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Ah, okay. So, Chris, what about you? What would you do in that scenario? Well, I've had a few glasses of Japanese wine over the years, I must admit, <laughs> when I lived out there. And so I like that idea. But yeah, I would probably go, and, I, and I've been in a situation like this a few times with various clients I've done, probably for leafy crops, like especially one that comes to mind for me is spinach. I'm a big spinach fan, but uh, it will bolt quite easy. So if you put it, I had it on my allotment and last year when we had that heat in the spring, early summer, it, I didn't get anything from it. It just wanted to set seed. First thing it wants to do. So in the shadier conditions, will probably benefit something like spinach. Also, maybe some of the green crops, the mustards probably do okay. I think rocket would probably all do okay. I love those organic crops. You can just put straight in your salad, straight in your sandwich. I would probably give them a go. Drill, sow them. You could do it, uh, repeat it all through the summer and see how you get on. I think the only downside to it probably is because it's not getting, it's not photosynthesizing as heavily because it's getting shaded a bit. The, the yield will be lower, but I would certainly give that a go. Okay, so some leafy crop. Um, talking of leafage, I mean, I've got a very, very successful comfrey patch underneath a tree so it's a great opportunity to grow some green manures that you can then just you know use around the garden and the various different uses so yeah it's not the end of the world if you're if you're uh, if you've got some shade then actually you can take advantage of it can't you somebody else has written to us saying they've got an awful lot of coffee grounds i don't know if they perhaps get that from a local cafe they're asking what is the very best use for coffee grounds so i'm going to go to you first on that one anton so i'd say the best use of coffee grounds is to put it into your compost. Coffee grounds is quite rich in nitrogen, so it really serves well as an activator. It really will help to get your compost going quickly. I personally don't like putting it directly on the beds. I find it tends to, when it sort of dries out, it forms a bit of a like a sort of hard crust on the soil and that can sort of stop with the sort of water permeating the soil so well. Also, it can have what's called an allelopathic effect. That's that's a sort of fancy word for biological warfare. That's when plants produce chemicals that stop other plants germinating and growing. 
And quite a lot of plants do it, actually. And it, it's just a way of plants competing against each other. And actually, the caffeine in the coffee grounds can actually sort of have an inhibitory effect on some of the plants if you put it on the soil. It does break down quite quickly. So putting it in the compost is probably the best thing to do. It'll help get rid of those chemicals. There's all sorts of claims made around coffee grounds. And I remember there was a real trend to try them as a slug control. Chris, did you have any success with that? Well, I did try it. I remember the garden at the time. It's going back a little way now, but I remember everyone saying, oh, coffee grinds were the answer, as they have said about many things over the years when it comes to slugs and snails. I did try it, and I found that actually the wet coffee grinds straight on had very little effect at all. I think when they dried, they seemed to have more effect. But I will point out, I do use multi um, methods of controlling slugs and snails, not all of them harmful, by the way. And uh, I think that's probably not very scientific. So you could maybe give it a go as a barrier, particularly around younger plants, and see how you get on. But I would mix it up with a few other methods as well. Well, somebody suggested to us, uh, there's a group of us together last week talking about this, and somebody suggested that, that if you put coffee grounds in your compost bin, then it would deter rats. However, we have tried that here at Wrighton, and I'm afraid we can't say that it does deter rats. And you might end up just quite simply with rats that just stay up all night <laughs> yeah, 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 I think rats are a little bit more determined when it comes to this sort of stuff don't you yeah. not going to be put off by a bit of coffee unfortunately now I've got a question about wisteria and there's so many beautiful wisterias out at the moment so I bought a wisteria for my 60th birthday 13 years ago and it had flowers on it on the way to the car a few flowers fell off and then on the way home my husband did an emergency stop and all the others fell off Sadly, it hasn't flowered since. Should I start again? Or are there ways I could still encourage it to flower? So, Chris, my goodness, I bet you're an expert on wisteria. I've come across a few. First off, get a new driver. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm only joking. I'm yeah, I, I mean, it's a, you can see it out and about at the moment. So what a beautiful plant it is. I actually pruned one just up the road, and I'll go on to explain how I did that in a little while. And it looks incredible at the moment. I've looked after a big one at Westminster Abbey as well. Um, they are amazing plants, but they do need a certain bit of attention. First of all, I think probably the ones you buy in garden centres are probably mollycolds a little bit. They've probably been brought up in a nursery where they're getting maybe artificial light, a lot of extra fertiliser, because you're not going to probably buy one if it's not in flower in a garden centre. So they encourage them to flower. And then what tends to happen is when you – basically, they've come from Buckingham Palace. You take it out and you put them in your back garden. They're not in that luxurious surrounding anymore. So what they do is they, well, they've got to reassess. They've got to check. They've got to go, well, I'll get my roots down, start to feel happy before I start to flower. So I think this is quite common in long sort of uh, plants that live a long time, and wisteria can live a long time. So I think you need to give it time to reestablish itself. But there are things you can do to encourage it to flower. The first one, obviously – as every gardener will say, it's pruning. As the summer goes on, you'll get this kind of whippy, sort of very sort of soft growth coming off of wisteria. I tend to take that back. I'll take that back to maybe four to six buds from the base. So I'm not encouraging it to produce too much foliage. And hopefully the sap then stays in the plant to encourage uh, flower buds. Then come the winter, the end of the winter, I'll spur prune it. I'll prune it like I prune a grape maybe a, a climbing rose. I have a framework and I prune it back to two to four buds onto that framework. I'll do that late winter. So then when it breaks, hopefully it's producing floral buds and that will then flower in May in the springtime when you want it to flower. All on new growth. That is the essence of the word. All on the growth that's produced between the end of the winter and May. That's where that's where the flower is going to come from. Don't be off put if you buy one and it doesn't flower for a first few seasons. 
I've seen these in the wild wisterias. I've seen them in China and I've seen them in Japan. They're massive linears. They last probably hundreds of years old. And what they tend to do is they get up into the, the canopy and the, and the ground floor, they're in, in a dark, damp conditions. So the other thing that's important is don't plant them against a wall where the ground's getting baked all day. Um, you can change that by underplanting. There's nothing wrong with a bit of underplanting. So you can put in some epimediums or some pachysandra or some ground covering plant comfrey to keep the roots cool. But if you think about it, it's a forest plant, so it likes a hot top and a cool bottom. So make sure that the ground, that the root to it isn't getting exposed to the heat and the sun too much. The final one is that you can give it potash feed. There's lots of organic potash out there. Our own Bokken 14 is big potassium content. Definitely give that a go with pellet or maybe spray. And the three things are basically is uh, keep the bottom of it cool, prune it back to those spurs in the winter, and give it a pie And then I'll tell you what, if you've had to wait 14 years for it to flower, what a, what a moment of happiness that will be. Well, that's an inspirational thought to think that it will that it will come back. That thirteen years is probably nothing in the life of a wisteria. So, that's fascinating. Well, that's all we've got time for. So we'll see you next time. Thanks ever so much, Chris and Anton. Cheers, Fiona. Cheers, Anton. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much to Anton and Chris for joining me on this month's organic gardening podcast, and thanks too to Sarah Venn for chatting with us. You can follow her at Sarah Limbach on Instagram and keep up with Edible Bristol at Edible Bristol on social media. Remember, you can visit us this month at Gardeners World Live, where we'll be showcasing our Backyard Biodiversity Show Garden from the 15th to the 18th of June at the NEC in Birmingham. Thanks to our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition and to Kevin McLeod for the music. 